Hi, Internet. It's me, Chris, your hostess for the mostest for the new podcast, The Fourth Floor. The Fourth Floor contains members from the physics faculty of the University of Victoria, all of which work in public outreach and at a few local telescopes in Saanich, BC. We go over topics that of course dabble in the cosmos, like special and general relativity, exoplanets, and other cool things. But we also discuss interesting artifacts from our past, some science fiction, and of course, some pseudoscience. For variety, the fourth floor intends to have a few guests on our show here and there. Other students and other researchers that also work at the University of Victoria or beyond. The first few episodes of our podcast stand to be the hangout sessions as our podcast develops. So, as a listener, please listen with a grain of salt or care. Consider it sort of like the B-sides of an artist. For the first episode, Calvin, Jason, and I sit at UVic's Astronomy Open House Telescope. We introduce ourselves, how we met, our education, and some of what we do day-to-day, which eventually converges around a place called the Center of the Universe, around the Dominion Astrophysical Observatory here in Saanich, BC. We check out some funky nudist space aliens that take regular vacations to Nevada and go for some of Jason's work, which is thankfully unrelated. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned as new episodes come out throughout the month. Okay, so now we're gonna. Now we're we're gonna try and start this. Okay, we're actually gonna try and rip off the band So, anyways, um, welcome to the pilot episode of Fourth Floor. Um, half a reboot, half not. Um, anyways, so my name's like what is a retcon? I guess. Yeah, this is a retcon, dude. That's so good. This is a retcon. So we're like completely rewriting the fiction that we've already created. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but the fiction was bad. It's just that we got a retcon. Yeah, because Earth forty-two. Because yeah, yeah. Also, some of us died, so we have to retcon. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. Jeez. Yeah, bring people back it's to life. It's called graduating. You should try it sometime. <laughs> Honestly, I'm never going to wear that. It is like death. Small. It is. It, <laughs> it is like death. It's colorless and I don't have money. Just like dead people. Um, okay, so anyways, my name is Chris. Um, I'm unfortunately talking myself into an honors math and physics degree. And I'm minor in astronomy. And I guess I've done some stuff and some, and partly like, partly what inspires us to do this is the fact that we all do outreach stuff. Like we talk to people about astrophysics and then accidentally also have to explain most general science things as a product of that because on the regs, on the regs. And then, and also all of astrophysics is a crux of crux of basic things. Like you, you can't, you know, orbits are like naturally near circular at our earliest convenience. So you really got to know circles pretty good. Like, um, but also anyways, that's what I do. I'm the student right now. And these are the two graduates who actually have meaningful lives with direction wow. and sleep oh, direction. <laughs> I don't know. Meaningful? That's an assumption. That's a that's a undergraduate, <laughs> a less than uh, graduate. But is it, that's that's me, uh, Jason. Tell it to me. Uh, well, I'm Jason. I I did honors physics and astronomy. Uh, squeaked a minor in math in there somehow. That's a squeak. Yeah, so sort of squeak by. I didn't hear it, but <laughs> definitely a squeak. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I do a, try to do as much outreach as possible. Um, that science education is super important uh, yeah. to my beliefs. And so I do as much as I can about it. I also work with a couple of profs here at UVic uh, doing some research. Which is great because I think I'm going to try to bother them sometimes just to like, get some background on you. <laughs> like, I, was, I was working with Jason. Yeah, they're like, he's super lazy and he super never gets lazy. his work done. But then, great, great taste. And then he though. plots a plot down. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I understand those variables. That's cool. But also, I guess you do it because um, uh, you can't see his face. But um, when we do open house outreach things, he just absolutely loves it. Like you would love it, and it's so cool to be able to answer people's questions with both, which which both of you can like, um, whatever. Because the question tells you the kind of like, well, it's really it's it's 
it's really nice to see that people have a drive for wonder. They're willing to get uncomfortable to know a new thing. Oh, yeah. And That's then, a, such a good statement. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think also it's a bit, <laughs> there's a bit of a social aspect to it because if you're, if you have full frontal nerdity and uh, it's, it's nice that someone wants to meet you in the middle, that like a person or maybe a complete stranger mm-hmm. will, will like, you can help them get closer to the ideals that they actually want to know. And that yeah. you guys now share this thing in common that you have the same curiosity. It's really nice to share that curiosity with a complete stranger that you would think that it's like this thing that maybe not many people are interested in, but you're bringing them closer to something you love, which is just an, a super fun thing to be able to do. And I've yet to meet someone who didn't have I mean, we're sitting right here. Well, yeah, but like, <laughs> but they, they like just the, the random public. I've never met someone who, if if I mentioned I study astronomy, mm-hmm. they instantly pop up with questions, mm-hmm. and I get them all the time. Like, oh, this kind of seems a little stupid. I'm like, don't trust me. It's not. Yeah. Ask your question, because I guarantee you, it's going to be amazing to answer. Yeah, this is the. Uh... Astronomy is like the null space of all stupid questions that have answers. Yeah. Like the like what we see. Like even I know I've milked this for the past like month and a half. But the night sky being black is an incredibly like fundamental it's human just, question. But its, it's answer is so too hard nuanced. to swallow. Yeah, there's, there's so many, many little nuances to it because you're like, oh, it should be really easy to answer, and it's like, well, actually, you know, you have to play with an infinity. Yeah. And that's really hard. <laughs> yeah, we got a small skull space. But anyways, that's Jason. And Calvin. that's Kelvin. Oh, that's Calvin. hi. That's you me. also can't see me point my finger, but that's Kelvin. And Kelvin's also a graduate. He graduated in stuff. That yes. About, um, yeah, I got a major in physics and astronomy and a minor in computer science. And that was because physics and astronomy isn't exactly employable. Um, that's kind of an important lesson Um, uh, I mean computer science is just I think it's nice to have just a little bit because because computers are everywhere oh true and if you if and when I should mention I should add that little when in there you do like you know you work for Chime or something that's mostly computer science most of most astronomy is computer science anyway yeah Yeah, exactly yeah so I mean uh, that's something you desperately need in computer science is just generally speaking employable so it was a really good thing for you to do and yeah it's it's also a valuable life skill just to not think of any sort of computer or piece of electronic that is just like some magical box um oh, true. to yeah. not to to be able to understand that if something's going wrong you can you're not just thinking like some wizardry is happening happening mm-hmm. um just having a general idea of this is how uh, the hardware of a computer works. This is how the software works built on top of that. This is a general idea of, you know, what it means to do a computation and to run a program or something. So that um, when something stops working, you kind of have this idea of, like, why it might be not working. Even if you don't know how to fix it, you're not just thinking, oh, well, I guess this is just a brick now. Yeah, but <laughs> it's a really well-organized internally. Brain. I mean, and this is the same thing. I mean, people, like, like all of our parents are, not even just our parents, but, like, probably everyone universally agrees that it's good to have some amount of car knowledge, knowledge of how a That's car a really works, analog. so that when something stops working, you're not just, oh, this is a brick now, and I need, I need somebody else with magic powers to fix it for me. That's so it's cool. It's like, okay, well, here's an idea of what might be wrong. Here's an estimate of the cost or something, or here's a, um, you know, you're not 
too mystified by it. That's really. And then, like, because computers are so near universal, I just apply that requirement for some basic knowledge. Computers. Yeah, that's super cool. <laughs> Actually, I did that with my car because, like, being able to fix your own brakes is a dicey. Like, that's already a dicey sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, I fixed my own brakes. Well, yeah, that's that's like the classic cartoonish, like, oh no, yeah. my brake. I can <laughs> I can do it myself. That's incredible. That's, that's why we should also still value. Uh, experts in their field yeah, 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 100%. <laughs> because like yeah you can do some projects diy but you gotta know what you're doing <laughs> yeah and thankfully uh some engineers are, are really uh, useful because the fixing your brakes is easy it's quite easy to fix your brakes what if they, they you give you a little the, pads once you the, know the thing fits in the pad area you you, you close <laughs> it there's like you just have to get it in the right order because they do fit a certain way yeah, yeah. once well, yeah, you know the yeah. order yeah, and slides on easy peasy, lemon squeezy. And they've shaped the most sense of it that like it's really hard to get it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Like you'd have to try to get it wrong, and then just the wheel and stuff won't close properly because it doesn't fit properly. And yeah, I guess, thank goodness for engineering. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think it's also super fun. Arbitrarily, how we met. Uh, only actually pretentiously from my perspective because uh, okay. I know I know that you two were friends before I met both of you. But both of you were in school on the fourth floor to me. And but okay. I actually met you when I went to a different school. So when I came here, uh, yeah, yeah, I came here from Camosa, just down the street. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I would just come here on Wednesday nights because I'm doing astronomy. Yeah. Like, I'm not, not doing astronomy. So it turns out this is a place for that, and there's a big old thing. And I was walking by, and it's like, oh, there's a sign for some stuff on the fifth floor or something. So I just came up here. And, um, yeah, and then I just hung up with you guys and five other people who have now also moved out. And uh, yeah, now now for some reason I work here and you guys roped me into this kind of <laughs> stuff. Yeah, yeah, but also Calvin, on top of on top of whatever, you also work at a really important place locally here. Oh my gosh! Yeah, Do you want to go into this? We can. We can go into this. And oh, I think it's, all right. It's super important to go into this, and uh, but only to us this yes. idea has been milked. Yeah. Um, so it is just important to describe. So okay. Yeah, yeah, so, so so how much history do you know very well? A decent amount. Of the DAO. Yeah, yeah, to start with history of the, the center of the universe. Um, well, I first want to say what it is, and then maybe talk, yeah, and then we can see how yeah. deep we want to go. Because it, I think it is an important place. So, in Victoria, BC... Also, I uh, pause you. Uh, we're, we just said the center of the universe is an important place. Yes, it um, is. But to anyone who doesn't know what the center of the universe is... As an important place, right? We well, mean not we... the actual center of the universe <laughs> is an important place that we it's can not know. Toronto. Yeah, it's not Toronto. Yeah, yeah. yeah thank you. <laughs> uh, so uh, the center of the universe, not be the set, like capital center, and then uh, capital the universe. So uh, that's just this is a this is an outreach center that's on. It's the like hill. a center for learning about the universe. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. So, so yeah, you. Um, yes, in Victoria, um, in Saanich, BC. Um, there exists a observatory, a telescope called the Dominion Astrophysical Observatory, and that is both a like historical site and a facility that's used for science, mm. like modern science today. Um, and I think that's the really interesting combination because it's a uh, telescope uh, that is a hundred years old. Um, it started, uh, got its first light in 1918, and ever since then, it's pretty much been operational with, of course, modern upgrades and such. And so, it's like an antique that people still use for science. And uh, um, there is the center of the universe, so that's the um, the 
education and outreach portion of that observatory. Which is in the same parking lot. Yes, the same parking lot. And ever since um, it was first used, the observatory, um, it was intended to be uh, open to the public whenever it can. Mm -hmm. um, it was uh, the, the original director, John Stanley Plaskett, had intended it to be open to the public because it is a federally funded uh, observatory. And um, so he always had outreach uh, programs to begin with. Um, so the center of the universe is, is like a building that is built for that. So it's got almost like a museum in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there's, of course, you know, tours. And that's, I guess, where I come in is I've been doing tours lately of the telescope. And I guess John Stanley Plaskett's opening of that thing is, we're not talking like a little while ago, we're talking 100 years ago. Yeah. 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 And like, it's been continuing They finished since. the building in like <laughs> 1916. Yeah. And then got the actual telescope going in 1918. And, like, yeah. and I actually, I deeply appreciate that because this guy, it's federally funded, but he was specifically, you know, this is made by the people for the people. Like everyone is paying for this. And this is during World War One. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So during World War One. They had that was. French, they decided French it was company. valuable enough. <laughs> they did. They're like this. This will bring the stars down to earth. So, um, and you're all paying for it. So you all deserve to see what you've created here. And I'm just the guy organizing the people who know stuff more than me. And then I actually might do some science later on if you guys are interested. But then uh, might. I mean, he he was doing radial velocities of, of galactic stars in the Milky Way. Right? Yeah, which was there's some was gonna bring up. other historical achievements that actually happened there. So that's yeah, yeah. There's he two major ones, stuff. isn't there? So so um, it wasn't, I don't think it was this, it wasn't the Plaskett Telescope, but it was the HIA. It was the McKellar Telescope, the 1.2 meter telescope. Um, yeah. the, another telescope that's on the same hill. Yeah, yeah. There's actually a few telescopes on the hill. There's three, but the third one is sort of hiding under a hut down the street from the Keller. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, so actually on Observatory Hill, there's the three telescopes. The biggest one, 82, 83 inches, because if you actually go to the paper that's... Um, yeah. Yeah, you go to the paper, they actually say it's 83? Um, 0.83 meters. Sorry, no. Um, 72 inches? Yeah, 72. Is 70. the, I think the Gurriel measurement version of it? Yeah, yeah, yeah I could be getting that off, but I think it's right. Yeah, because <laughs> point, point, point 0.8 meters would be the that guy. I think 28 meters is 32 years. Is that right? Wow. Okay, fine. But, but 72, 73 inches. Unit converter all up in here then. That's totally fine. But anyways, yeah. The thing is, um, that's the large optical telescope, but the McKellar telescope was the one that identified the arms of the galaxy, didn't it? Using, um, yeah, using, using radio velocities. And, yeah, radio velocity of yeah. spicy stars. And just selected a few, and they realized actually, you know, we're one of those. We're we're galaxy spiral arms. We're the things. We're the. We're the one that's the the mirror image of the closest one we can see. Yeah, yeah, yeah which is super fun. Yeah, and it's what's entertaining about that is, I mean, they didn't know it was a mirror image at the time. They for the last hundred years have thought the Andromeda is much bigger than us, but uh, yeah. in the last six eight months. Um, there was a paper about how recounting the Milky Way stars were about on par with Andromeda. Really? Yeah, yeah, because I heard that well, Andromeda is actually a little bit smaller yeah. than a long time ago, though. Yeah, and, and the reason why, like, for those of you who don't know, um, when you're inside a forest, it's pretty hard to count all the trees. <laughs> you can only count the ones you can see, and I guarantee you can't see them all. And so that's our problem when we try to count stars, yeah. is that, you know, we get to see... 
they're really close ones, they're really bright ones, and all the ones that are hidden in dip and dust were just like, okay, cool, whatever. And so we've used other measurements to try and guess, mm -hmm. um, but we haven't ever been able to get those measurements really precise. Yeah. Astronomer. Also, yeah. like plus or minus a thousand or ten thousand or a hundred thousand in astronomy, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Worth five bucks <laughs> a change, like who cares about the change? Okay, so um, yeah, the one point eight three meter telescope is 72 inches. I should have known that because when I stand beside the mm -hmm. mirror, talking about the mirror, um, it's, it's a, about my, I, I'm 188, yeah. so I should have been able to, yeah. <laughs> that's a speech I Now again, me. you were talking about how it might be 1.85. Yeah, in the original paper he publishes is like actually 73 or something okay, like that. Yeah, yeah, and then I'm like, wait a yeah. second, I've been telling people, and if you go into the storage room. It says two of the numbers in the same room yeah, yeah, in yeah. different locations. It Not does. in the storage room, I think even in the in the dome itself, there's like one like piece of uh, explanation that says 1.85. Yeah, Another yeah. one, this is 1.83, and it's just like, like wait, I've been selling a speech that's been wrong, and, yeah. and then and other like things, it's like, no, it's a 72. I'm like, God, do we just tell people it's 72? It's actually like 77, you know, or something. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But anyways, yeah. Um, and the other big, huge piece of history that happened at the DAO, I'll probably open this up more deeply later, but the other thing that happened at the DAO, which makes the Average Center just awesome, is that we have a prof here that I'm super glad to have been a prof with, but it's a Stevenson Yang. Um, but we yes. discovered the first methodology for exoplanets. Yes, there, the radial velocity method. The radial velocity method, and it's its own. That story alone, being so local, is just its own like epic. You know, like oh, it's huge. You have like you have uh, like just as a. It's like the you have like monsters. You here. have you know heroes fighting and slaying dragons and and other heroes leaving the party and, and like it's just yeah. it is it is an epic. It yeah. is so such a good story. Yeah, it's incredible that like he he's doing his thing. He's holding a dangerous gas that could kill him, which is just the way that light diffracts around, which is super handy. And uh, he can't breathe any of it because it's. Big. I don't know what the gas was, but I'll I'll look into uh, it. I'll have to look it up. But yeah, it would definitely kill you if the, upon upon breathing your death. We will. Um, we we should we concoct should this a story. We should. Uh, yeah, we should. Oh, we should write it down. We and we'll talk about it. Yeah, that, that's its own episode. <laughs> we'll have to actually ask Stevenson Yang about some stuff and like. Oh, that'd everything. be great. Yeah, I would absolutely love that. Okay. Because we'll Stevenson, put it in the notes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We'll definitely put that in the notes. And um, yeah. So anyway, Stevenson Yang figures out how to um, figure out the radial, like a, 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 like a better radial velocity method. And that, anyway, that like helped us identify exoplanets for the first time ever um, that are outside our solar system. Because strangely, there's this like socio-cultural thing in the astronomy community that we just didn't believe exoplanets would be outside our solar system very commonly, such that it was not at all. But... Um, and then it was like a sci-fi thing, like quite obviously there's more than, you know, there's solar systems. But, you know, when you see binary stars and no planets that you can resolve, you, you gather the supposition with the tools that you have that there might not be a large, be a large um, occurrence of, you know, planets having stars. Star, yeah, yeah, stars having planets, etc. So, um, yeah, we just assume not. But Stephen Yang, Stephen Yang, like, cracked the mold on that and... And uh, opened up that door, and then apparently another observatory made the same observation with his method. After um, after some time, they heard about his method and then used it, and then they got the publication, and then we didn't, or something like that. 
But uh, it doesn't matter because, like, this is a little dramatic for me to say, but if I were a scientist who was working on something that I felt was important contextually for the entire planet, um, whether it be, like, 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 psychologically, its significance is great. But I didn't make the, like, I didn't publish my verification, just like in the movie Contact. Like, mm -hmm. there's a scientist who's, like, really brilliant, lovely lady, and someone else, like, basically steals her work. Um, yeah, that's terrible, and it's a bad thing. But and her focus... And it shouldn't be done. It should never be done. Yeah. Like, this should never happen. And, of course, it shouldn't happen. Because if somebody's life's work gets accredited to somebody else, it's not obviously fair. However, the importance is, is that humanity wakes up to the idea that their previous ideals are wrong, and they're rewritten by something that's, with certainty, verifiably true. So, um, Stevenson Yang can know for the rest of his life that he did it right first. Mm -hmm. And that's something he can know with certainty, and that what he has done is a great thing for the astronomical community. Yeah, and nobody can take it away. Yeah, no one can take that away. So, if you steal his work, you're just, yeah, whatever, sloppy seconds for you. But, um... I made the dis like I made the discovery. I did the thing. I have the data, and despite anyone arguing over decimal points, what I did was true. So that's another thing that um, that observatory did. And I guess now the DAO and the HIA are doing um, research towards um, act uh, sorry adaptive optics techniques. So they're like the world hub of this, which I thought was hilarious. The, the HIA, like little Victoria. Um, is is uh, a world hub of, of um, adaptive optics, which is basically just fixing light rays that come to you. It's just well, it's just it's for, it's removing the atmosphere. Just removing the atmosphere by like you get wavy light that passes through a turbulent atmosphere and it warps the image. We just you know choose off the hip to unwarp the image yeah. by shooting lasers, which is also super cool. It's just shoot lasers into the sky and the lasers meet at the sodium layer that's 91 kilometers in the sky and it's more sort of it bumbles around a bit and you take that bumbling and sensors on the ground see that it's bumbling by this amount so you know the waveform the wave front of that light should be this strangely oddly shaped to some accuracy i'm going to make a tertiary or third mirror you know warp and flex in such a way that it's the inverse of that shape in a sense and then just the two shapes completely cancel. cancel it out. Yeah, yeah. And then when it hits it, it just undoes the oddly shaped wavy boy. Effectively and deleting the atmosphere. <laughs> effectively just like as if the event never occurred. And then you just get this perfect, near perfect result images if you're in outer space. And I'm just like, mm, yeah, before with all that science stuff, thinking that was magic. No, we just fixed light. That's that's pretty magical for, yeah. my, for my simple mind. Yeah, no, I mean, it's... It is an incredible thing, and I remember we we had that tour we went on um, we with Karun, and we went to the lab, and you know, I was five years old again when I watched it actually work. Yeah, it was so good. Like, and he's like, "Oh it's yeah, you know," and I've got like this. It looks really dim. You might not be able to see it, but I turn it on, and the reason you can't see it is it's taken all the light and spread it out over a larger area. Mm. But when you actually fix it, it puts it into a point. Well, now you've got more light at a point, and suddenly you can see the star. So yeah. you can see the point all of a sudden just by fixing it like that. And so not only does it allow you to resolve binaries, it'll just make us see stars we've never seen before. Yeah, we've like, never seen before. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's, it's what is it, 2019, and there's still stars we haven't seen in our own galaxy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just yeah, because, you know, our atmosphere is in the way. Yeah. And it's, you can just, no, I just don't, I don't want that there anymore. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think for me, like the first time I saw it, it was just sort of a lot of words were happening. I understood all the steps, like before you transfer and everything that's that's going into this fancy business, whatever. 
but just sort of, you don't, it, it takes about an hour. And so, you know, someone pulls a hood over your head and they take an hour to do it. <laughs> you kind of just like don't realize there's, it's over your face. And then, <laughs> yeah. And then I'm like, wait a second. You've done quite a severe magic trick. You've <laughs> fixed something at the speed of light, technically, such that, not at the speed of light, but such that we can resolve things at some uncomfortably high rate such that we can identify old light. Yeah. We're, we're playing, we're, we're, we're not breaking any laws here. We're just basically asking permission for the light to fix itself. <laughs> like we want to see some stuff. Can you do, can you fix yourself so that I can see the thing? And, and that's what we're doing. We're just yeah. bending some stuff real quick, like so that the reflection well, we get is just like, and I'm, I'm just, image. I'm, I'm going to tr try and remember, I'll, I'll actually get the numbers for next time to, to clarify. Uh, but in, in the the tour, he was talking about, oh, yeah, like this computer, because it's like, you know, a, a desktop at an office. So he's like, yeah, I, I get this thing running at like 80 hertz or, or something. And that's, you know, 80 times a second. And you go, you know, you slow clap that across the line. It's good enough. Like everybody's happy. It looked great. And he's like, yeah, when this goes on the 30 meter telescope, it'll go at like 8 gigahertz or something yeah, like it'll because he's just they're just going to run it through a supercomputer and that's the supercomputer's job is to do that calculation recursively and like billions of times a second and it's going to be like i've now removed the atmosphere yeah i cheated and um i guess we should explain why that's significant why do we even care about removing the atmosphere aside from my first explanation like you know you get distortions from light but so <laughs> it's a huge major reasons for getting rid of the atmosphere. Firstly, our original idea um, was to get rid of the atmosphere by just sending stuff into space. Mm -hmm. Sending stuff yep. into space is like the most expensive venture. So when the, um, I'm uncomfortable to admit this first episode, but uh, so in 1990 was the year I was born, January 4th. And um, so a couple months later in March, I think it's like March 20th or something, we launched Hubble for the first time. Hubble being but if the entire thing is we can get a pretty decent telescope where we just put some rocket fuel on the back of it and blow it out of outer space, just get in lower Earth orbit, or I'm uh, pretty sure it's in the deal. Yeah. But um, if we get if we get this thing into space, we won't worry have to we won't have to worry about something important. And the important thing we want to worry about is the is the fact that resolution to telescopes is dependent on the diameter of the, of the primary mirror. So the primary mirror is. You know, like the, the literal equation for it, which I would write out for you, but it's better to look at, is involves the diameter of the primary mirror being in like the reciprocal. So um, the, the idea is that we can resolve things that are smaller. The number is literally smaller if we have a larger diameter mirror. If the thing's really, really big, we can get it. But the problem is, is that after a certain size, it really doesn't help us necessarily. You just get really zoomed in blurriness. Yeah. Which is super fun. Because the atmosphere is in the Because way. of the atmosphere. And this is just because of terrible turbulence and other things. So the analog I like to give is that we've all opened our car doors on a hot day. And you look above the car, if you're as tall as me, and the heat leaves the car. It's destroying the image you're looking at. Yeah, or, it's all wavy. It's all wavy. Yeah, it's all There's wavy. There's another one I like to do, and it's the dark side of the moon cover. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah because I it makes the rainbow, right? The white light hits, makes the rainbow. Yeah. And that's a lens. Mm -hmm. And now every time you go up a little higher in the atmosphere, you've made a new lens. So you've taken this pristine starlight and it's hit the first layer and it's turned into a bunch of colors and they bend at different uh, angles. And then it hits the next layer. 
and all oh, they bend at different angles again and they just and they just walk around and it just gets wider and fuzzier and weirder the stevenson's classic yeah and you just it just you know every color does whatever the heck it wants and it it, it won't like go all the way out it'll stay to a small area but it's definitely not That's the same limit, it's yeah. not the point yeah it's not the point you're looking at like a star should be a point Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and this is this you can see in the night sky. That's why they twinkle. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. They twinkle because all of those that white light from a star of all the colors it emits hits our atmosphere, gets spread into a rainbow, and all those colors hit your eye at different times, and so you actually see it twinkle from blue and red and, and red again and blue and then you know mm-hmm. and it bounces around. And analogously, we've all put our we all have been between the ages of five and fifteen. I put a pencil into a glass of water or something and just like looked at the side of it and just watched yep. it bend. The similarly like imagine that bending occurring, but that's a constant bend. But this bend happens so many times over because the multiple air multiple layers. Yeah. Different layers. Well, yeah, the air is moving yeah. and so you're just moving the lens around. You are and, and it's yeah and so it's moving but it's most is moving because of the dependency on temperature. We've got fluid flow. Yeah. But it's totally clear. And the, the supposition there is that the index of refraction, the permission for light to bend around or whatever, is normally just one in air, but when but in the equation is actually heat. And so heat will determine this index and it's like as it goes around it's sort of bending, bouncing, well it's not, not bouncing, but it's sort of being like bumbled around as it gets to you and then you're witnessing the twinkling. You'll you always notice there's more twinkling on the horizon than there is yes. above you because there's less yep. there's more air to pass through towards the horizon. But um, at any rate so that's what this thing does. So um, to get around this, we would send, in 1990, we sent um, the whole space telescope into space. And we just, you know, that's how you get rid of an atmosphere, just to completely ignore the thing. But the, that project was billions and billions of dollars to get the thing into the sky. And that was only a 1.98 or something meters. Yes. Was it or was it 3.6? Or I thought it was 1.9. It was... Yeah, it's, it it's, it's less than two. I'm pretty sure it's less, it's less than, than two, two which is still decent. Like I'm not, I don't have that in my backyard. Yeah, like I think you know, for all intents and purposes, say it's a two meter telescope. That's decent. Like, that's taller than a human. Yeah, that's fair size. Um, you know, but now we have telescopes on Earth that are eight and ten, <laughs> and then it gets bigger. And, and then, then we realize tessellation is the thing that can happen safely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now we have ridiculous telescopes, but. Yeah, having it in space was just, it got around a whole bunch of, of, around having a giant telescope that can't see very well, or far enough accurately. And uh, that was good and all, but it was billions of dollars. And then, you know, moments later, we go to take a picture, and it's bad. It's not better than what you would get from a, tel- like a, you know, a homemade telescope or something. It's just terribly distorted. And I'll look into this more later, exactly what happened, because my memory is a little fuzzy. But something happened where there was a scathing of the center of the primary mirror in the way, like in the in the in the backlay or something, before they vaporized a, a groovy mirror onto it. And so its shape wasn't quite right. So all the light didn't actually focus to the point. And basically, I think again, had astigmatism. Yeah, it had myopia. Yeah. And so all the light didn't actually focus the point. So in longest possible story story, analogously, we spent billions more sending a bunch of people for a job we've never done which is give a telescope that's in space a contact lens. And then we fixed it with a bunch of other, <laughs> a bunch of other cues that helped the thing uh, focus digitally and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, we sent the... Yeah, and, and honestly, kudos to them too, because you have to you have to figure out how you're going to do that with just crappy images. Like, you, you just have bad images, but like, what is wrong? Like, what's what's yeah. hilarious is 
and I'll have to double check how 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 much they got uh, help from like an eye doctor, but it was basically um, it took them a while. Like they didn't just the next day. Oops, sorry. Here's your contact lens. It took time, yeah. and in that time, they're like, "Well, we better use it." And so they found out a way to correct it as best they could digitally using the corrective lens equations that are used by eye doctors. So they basically yeah. figured out Hubble's prescription and applied <laughs> that as best they could digitally yeah. and then summed up the money and, and gave it a permanent fix so that they didn't have to do it. And it was um, a, a big clap on the back to the guy that figured it out because when they put the lens up and they compared his images, they were actually pretty close. He's like, yeah, this is my correction. This is the lens. Nice. So it like validated the you know the previous year's research everyone had done with it because they were just like, oh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Here's, what, been, that's here's been, what scares me though. Mm -hmm. um, so that telescope, uh, Hubble, uh, is in low low Earth orbit, mm -hmm. so and thus reachable. Thus reachable. <laughs> um, James Webb Space Telescope is not going to be in low Earth orbit. It's in Lagrangian, isn't it? It's in L2. So it's going to be so far away, it's not fixable if there's something <laughs> wrong with it. And they're using invented tech to get it to work. Now, granted, they've done that twice on Mars missions now. The, the last two rovers that NASA and uh, ESA sent to Mars had brand new tech that's like they... they invented the ways to get the the rovers down there right and they work now um uh, what's the one insight has the mole is that the one that has the drill to drill down oh. is that insight oh i'd have to look into that but i think that's the entire purpose of why we call it insight yeah and uh so it's drill broke but it landed perfectly fine Nice. And so NASA is kind of starting to get this track record of, you know, like, yeah, if we if we build it, it will work, uh, which is good. Uh, it's also a little bit hubrisy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I really need James Webb to work. <laughs> I really need James Webb to work. Oh, man. That'll be such a blow. No, NASA will never be allowed to launch another space telescope. Yeah, right James. yeah that's true. Yeah. Oh, man, that would be such a gut shot. It's but also over budget. It's over length. Everything oh, is... Everything is over, but it's also... It's overkill what they've... Not what they've claimed it can do, because I believe it can do that. Of course they can. These are people who are orders of magnitude smarter than I'll ever be. Mm -hmm. So, of course they know, and there's a very large team of them who have been doing this for a while, so I have full confidence that they'll be able to do it. However... My main concern, my principal concern here, is that I have a sticker on my laptop that I've had for five years. And if I have a sticker on my laptop for five years with no payout for the one the one dollar I spent on Redbubble, and you're just not gonna you're not gonna pan out for me in JWST. I've been telling people it's like a hundred times the uh, the value of Hubble to be filled. Yeah. Well, we can like to. They, they have to do it. They have well, to do that image again. Yeah, then okay. that's the thing, and that's like the one, the one thing. Uh, there's been a couple profs here that have worked on it, and I've told them. I said, I don't care what your lineup is for research. If the first picture you guys don't take isn't the Hubble Deep Field with the James <laughs> yeah. Webb, just oh to be like, this is why. The before and after. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Because James Webb sees in red, like a little bit more yeah, red. So yeah, it just it, it just gets red. to yeah. see farther. 
So Hubble, I think, is like 8.1 redshift is the max, yeah. or 8.9 yeah. or something so like maybe, that. Yeah. Like, it's pretty decent. Yeah. And that's Hubble just doing its best with that deep field. Mm -hmm. James Webb's going to get that, and like, that was a month or whatever. I, I can't remember say, how yeah, long Hubble, Hubble did. And whereas, you know, James Webb will do that in a week. Yeah. And it's going to be like, so I'll just stay here for a month and just see forever oh, yeah. and have a nice day. Yeah. And, like, that's all they have to do. Yeah. And be like, this is... Th was this worth it? And every astronomer is going to be like, yep. Yeah, hands <laughs> down. Yep, this yeah. is fine. They're not an astronomer, but they said it was worth it. Yeah, exactly. Now, is James Webb also the telescope that's going to be doing like the seeing the uh, Atmosphere? atmospheres yeah. of exoplanets? So it's going to have a. Uh, awesome. I think it has two spectrograms. spectrograms? He does have two one. spectrographs, and I don't remember. One's like stupid. Yeah, one's stupid good. The other one has a specific focus. That's probably what it is. But right. yeah, yeah. yeah, so James Webb's gonna gonna look at transiting planets specifically as the planet hits the star and exits the star. Yes. Because that tells you what the planet's atmosphere is. Yeah. Yeah, actually we should. If probably... you can see that much resolution, of course. Yeah. <laughs> no telescopes <laughs> can do that now, I don't think. No. Um I think they've managed to get a few. Really, but really like, standy out lines, something aggressively, and yeah, something that like, is we found hydrogen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we found the most abundant compound. We water. found a gas giant yeah. with hydrogen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah well, yeah. and that's like that's another thing actually about the hill is that Coude room, on that um, on the McKellar. on the yeah, one point two meters. Yeah, that's an entire room sized <laughs> spectrograph. Spectrograph, and it was an built laboratory so that <laughs> it is when an lab. It, it, yeah, well, and it was built as a model run for what they did at um, uh, was it Gemini? I'm trying to remember the or yeah, you the, were the, so the, right. the Subaru, the Subaru telescope. Oh. They built a coup room that matches that. That was what it was built for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole and thing was and then Keck wanted to see if they could run the fiber optics line to it because it, it's just it's the best spectrograph on the planet. Yeah. So the Subaru telescope, I think, has done some planetary spectrograph. Didn't Karun work on the fiber optics? Yes, he did. He, yeah, was it was it Keck? Karun, yeah, it he did. Keck and uh, yeah, because it and that yeah the fiber optics cable was run all around the telescope hill. Because they were trying to get it the right length between Keck and, and Subaru. Oh, that's super fun. Yeah. You'd be up on top of this mountain. So they, they ran the exact same length of cable to the Kude room down, and they just wanted to see if, if it would work. Mm -hmm. Because you do have loss with fiber optics. And so yeah. if your fiber optics loses 10% mm -hmm. and you're only 10% better, it's not worth it. True. To, but Gemini or Subaru's more than 10% better than the Keck Observatory <laughs> spectrograph type idea. So with, with time, yeah. especially now, you're just getting better stuff on that. Yeah. By the time they install it, there's just like somebody else almost done something better. Well, I mean, all, all you're worried about for, for spectrograph is path length. So if you make it the size of a bigger room, you have a bigger path length. True. Yeah, so, yeah. Or you just use more mirrors to bounce it around so it just has a bigger path length through all the mirrors. True. I guess we'd also explain the whole trying to get lines, absorption lines out of a planet that's really, really far away. Well, that's, I mean, that's important because those absorption lines are the fingerprints. Yeah, I always right? explain it as a barcode because literally when you look at it, oh, it does. It, it looks <laughs> yeah. like a barcode. Yeah, yeah. And it is our fingerprint. It's sure. the fingerprint of every element. And most molecules have 
their own kind of fingerprint, although they're crazy hard to deal with. Um, but there's still people. a lot more degrees of freedom to make, <laughs> yeah, to they, make lines with. <laughs> they do really weird things. And once you figure out what it is they do and how to look for it, um, you can model it and, and figure it out. There's a couple profs that work on that here. Yeah. I'm just um, glad that we, we live in a universe where all elements in uniquely different states of them have their own unique fingerprint. We're so yeah. lucky. Like, I didn't realize this until I was explaining to people and I'd done it a bunch of iterations, just how lucky we really are. Because when you look out, when you're match, like, we just we just lucked out, we, we got a universe, okay. That makes we, sense. Yeah, that <laughs> that can, can make sense. And all we have to work with is light. Yeah. That's all we got in our hands here is some old light we got to trust ourselves with. And then, yeah. But we can regenerate the same processes here on Earth and just match it to the light we see out in the universe. Yep. We've got a fingerprint of iron, Got a fingerprint of a compound in a better state, or such a unique better state, but a uniquely, like, sorry, specific state. Then, then that's just like it's got its barcode. Its fingerprint is right there, and so you just compare the two. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you're going to see a little bit of water and some sun somewhere. You yeah. point your telescope at, you point your diffraction grating towards, you know, um, some planet and some hopefully not too distant star. You get this like super faint line of some compound or some some elements in there it's going to be suggestive some some stuff, some stuff. that's yeah. we are so lucky to have that what if it was just a harder thing to figure out it's just nice that when as soon as, as soon as you get the light that's your answer the yeah. answer is sitting in front of you it's, it's not like for several months of crunching uh, i forget the so scientist's name but yeah he did the i think bunsen might have been his name because he did it that's what the bunsen burn. burn the stuff but uh it was fraunhofer who did the line of the sun, and then well, they, yeah, then they but, like but, held hands for an hour and yeah, figured it out. because it was Bunsen who was burning stuff in chemistry and noticed that, oh, these things all make individual lines. Yeah, and then, yeah, Fraunhofer was like, hey, look, spectra, individual lines. <laughs> and then they, you know, had lunch one, one day. And <laughs> they're like, hey, your lines are my lines? My lines we're are doing the same research? <laughs> you know, me, me, you, me, you, me, you, me, you. you. Your, your <laughs> gaps are my lines? Wait a second. Yeah. That's so cool too, actually, uh, because I don't know if that was—I don't think it was put together right away. That like the gaps and the lines are just the you gaps put, in you the put them together and you get the continuum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's literally a child's puzzle. It's literally a child's color puzzle. Well, and yeah. the, I would say an even more like crazy thing is—is is that only happens at thermal equilibrium? Yeah, and so you have to have stuff that's happy. Because if I've just got really hot gas between galaxies, which I do research on, uh, I get Bremsstrahlung. And there's no lines. There's no lines. It's just I, I just get a continuum and I have to play with it. Uh, I don't get to tell you what's there from it. I have to find a way to trick it into putting out emission or absorption lines mm. like from a quasar behind it or something. Oh, fun. So, fun. yeah. because like ask that quasar move. Yeah, so I don't, I can't tell you what it's made out of unless there's something behind it that that makes uh, absorption lines. Yeah. Um, because they're not thermally equilibria, so they're not going to actually make emission lines. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's annoying because like stars and all that, and it'll be the same thing with planets. They're not going to have emission lines. They're going to have absorption lines. So you're going to have you're going to take a spectra of the star when the planet's somewhere else, mm-hmm. like when it's in somewhere else in its orbit. And you get, okay, now that's what the star does. And then as the planet passes in front, you go, okay, cool, now I minus the star. And you're left with just the planet. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if I take away the star, all I have is the planet. 
yeah. by yeah. like you know mathematical de- definition, and it's crazy that that's just that's yeah, a, that, that that's allowed to work. That's allowed to work. It's <laughs> allowed to work. Stuff that's just hanging out. That's yeah. great. Yeah, that's fun. Well, speaking of planets, actually, it's not something I necessarily wanted to bring up, but uh, it's on the it's on the track of life on other planets, I guess. Um, which I it is knock it down and don't knock it down and I'm not, I'm not telling you to do your choice here you have the liberty to do whatever but um, I'm going to spoil a Bob Lazar um, a Bob Lazar doc it's not a doc actually maybe it is a documentary I don't even know anyways it's a it's a documentary about a guy named Robert Lazar who apparently discovered aliens in Arizona north of Las Vegas and I like where this is going See, I already, I automatically dismiss these things. <laughs> it says, um, I'm an I'm, adult and I do science, I science real good, like. Yeah, I, I instantly part. checked out and started, like, looking at the shapes in the room. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and 100% fair. <laughs> it's real but, hard to stay focused. It really is. You know where we're going with this, yeah. and it's nowhere up. So, you're talking about Texan aliens? Texan aliens. Okay, these are the real rowdy guys. Yeah, six okay. shooter on the hip. And, six uh, laser shoot. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because if I had a laser gun, it was only allowed to shoot six. It's only allowed to shoot six. <laughs> Integer value, yeah. Lasers. Um, anyway, this guy named Bob Lazar, uh, he's just, uh, he's a guy who allegedly went to MIT and allegedly went to this other thing. And, uh, sorry, Caltech. And uh, many people can actually confirm he was there, but the schools did not know he was there. And Mysterious. I know, but people are confirming people, like actual props and other people that work there. <laughs> Confirm he was there. They're like friends with him, but he's born and stuff. They actually know who he is. And the only reason he ended up working at this uh, lab that's also north of Vegas or around Vegas, um, it was some generically named lab that they interviewed him at for a specific job. And the only reason he got the interview is because he built a rocket engine on the back of his car. He knew how to, like, he was he's an engineering guy. He just built a rocket on the back of his car. Cool. So they're like, you're a handy guy who tinkers with stuff. You tinker all the time. That's what you do. And, he, you know, he went to school and he's got a job not necessarily related. So, like, we need you to check out some weird stuff we got. We got some weird stuff and uh, we check it out for you. For me. And I'm like, I don't want to go with this. Like, I just don't. I don't care for it. But um, I heard, I was listening to another podcast and I just, I, I, I heard it. I was like, okay, I'll listen to this because I actually, I love to hate these things. <laughs> yeah. I love to That's hate them because they're so they're bad. There's so desperate housewives old. of the galaxy. <laughs> it really is. And, and uh, you know, I'm always behind uh, the whole idea that you're, you always have the right to believe. I, 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 okay, support and defend your right to believe anything you want. And I think everyone, generally speaking, believes there's always a possibility for life out there because chemistry sets semi-uniform all around and it's also a lot of hubris to just assume that you're the only stuff going on in a especially when you're huge. you're made of the most common things the universe makes yeah yeah the most main sequency flavored things up to iron and so just some dust is this a documentary about life on other worlds no, or life sorry, other no. life in texas no no the long, <laughs> long... <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> Honestly, those both those statements are true. <laughs> because yeah, there's some funky stuff going on. It's not definitely not Texas. So, what, what is the documentary about? So the documentary is longest possible story short. A guy named Bob Lazar who worked at a particular area called Area S four, not Area fifty one, connected to Area fifty one flavored items, but not Area fifty one. Okay. Area S four, S four, S four. That was also 
semi-denied to exist and no one knows anything about it. And he, what he was, he was just a guy who was asked to um, tinker with, because he's a tinkerer, to tinker with this thing that they don't understand how it works. They can't really get to um, get to the bottom of what makes this thing not allow him to touch it or whatever. What do we do? And this is it is basically a UFO flavored shape. It's quite small actually. It's not a generic UFO. And uh, working on some stuff, uh, whatever, and then you know the government's following him and stuff like that. But I like his logic naturally. And it, it's actually, it's as generic as a UFO story could get, except for towards the end that, um, A, people, uh, so so he realized people were following him and his life, his sort of, his personal life is crumbling around him because of his job. His wife thinks he's cheating on him and then insert dramatic content here. However, when he's done, oh, sorry, sorry, during part of the, right before he's done, he actually comes out about what's going on there. And he decides to be a whistleblower because he thinks the feds are on his on his rear, and um, they there's they they're like, okay, well, like we have to closely monitor. And he figured out that people were following him, so he decides to come out with what's going on there. And I actually like that because when he decided to come out with going on there, of course he sounded like a crazy person. They're getting us to look at UFO yep. flavored things right. naturally, but why he did it was so that he wouldn't die. That's that's kind of clever. He decided to talk about it such that he knew that they couldn't kill him now. Because if they killed him, they just prove him semi-right. Ooh, that's, that's great. A, yeah, yeah, that's a great plot. It's just oh, be like, don't, I'm going to tell you about it because, not because it has any legitimacy that I'm, you know, I'm picking it to, but because I think that I work there and I'm dipping out and I've told some friends of mine that they're going to kill me now. So I actually have to talk about it. And those friends exist and he did the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so he like he goes on the news, and he talks about this particular element that didn't exist yet. Then two years later, it came out by the same lab that hired him. So that was some interesting sidebar thing that I did look into and didn't care to because I already know this is going. But um, yeah, it was a, it was a really interesting documentary. But the documentary was so like cheesily done about you know life in the universe and like alien UFO things and I like that societally we like recycled this idea that we're getting visited but like you know only a specific few know about it in this very specific Mm -hmm. area and you know the scientists would not be wildly excited about that it's not that like you think the first people to get wildly excited about it aren't some people in Nevada that are just crazy about it like the whole world would like to know the Mm -hmm. whole world would just go and say okay this is in Nevada okay yeah yeah, sorry yeah we're, we're in um Las Vegas. Yeah, okay. north or south of Las Vegas. Not that I care. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, I I didn't actually like the first half of it. I just thought it was garbage. The second half is like choices and stuff. He was like, you know, I gotta tell people. And then it, actually, regularly after that, the FBI did actually follow him. Like they they showed like they confirmed that they actually sort of like followed for a while, but just couldn't whatever. But that doesn't tell me anything. We didn't find out that. The FBI follows him because he keeps knocking on wrong doors about weird alien stuff. And, like, <laughs> he's actually kind of putting his nose in places he shouldn't. Right. It has nothing to do with this fake alien story whatsoever. He's just <laughs> literally being an aggressive aggressive dude. But um, at the same time, it's sort of, I want to paint aliens in the wrong picture. Everyone would like to know. It's Everyone not, wants to know. Everyone wants to know if there's aliens. Every scientist wants to know mm-hmm. if there's aliens. But, uh. That was my perfectly good waste of time in the week was just watching this thing that somebody else was talking about. And he got 
I think uh, I also don't necessarily listen often to the Joe Rogan podcast, but then he went on the Joe Rogan podcast and, and told his story and stuff like that. Great. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah he did. Yeah, 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 great. And my thing is just like, he is an educated guy. And they have evidence that he worked at those labs because they have old phone books for his office. And then, you know, they denied that he worked there the first time. They're like, actually, we have old phone books. And like, okay, yeah. Yeah, but, but, we, but he's the crazy guy about aliens that don't exist. We don't want to talk about that. Right. It was more or less that. It wasn't because... there's. I mean, there's a few, uh, you know, well-educated people who have, for, you know, well, or reason, like, developed either a mental disorder or just decided... Which um, I can't believe it yeah, I mean, really, I'm five steps away myself. <laughs> but, uh, like, what is the, that movie, uh, Is a Beautiful Mind? Yeah. Um, yeah, with uh, Russell Crowe. Yeah, and that's based on a true story of an actual mathematician. Yeah, mathematician. Uh, and he actually does, like, he, he develops schizophrenia, and he, he invent, like he actually does have, like, multiple people that he talks to. Anybody, yeah, he's some sort of dissociative. And but he he figures it out uh, in later on in his life, and, and he takes steps. It. Yeah, and I mean, granted, he was you know with medical advancements, he was you know, he was able to try to help himself. But it's not unheard of. Also, like the one guy, he uh, was a chemist. He won like a Nobel Prize, and now he's in France, and all he does is like alchemy. Oh, and yeah. uh, <laughs> and it's not new. <laughs> right? And so it's it's not unheard of. For that, like this scenario to play out, it's rare, but it and it's actually about par for the course and how rare it is is how often these people show up. <laughs> yeah. um, I digress. Um, but like one of my, I, I I have I'm from a small town, a lot of rednecks, and they love talking about aliens. And I just like, you know, you're it's horsefly. Why is an alien going to horsefly? Yeah, mm-hmm. what's, there's 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 a hundred people there. Like, what? Do you not like why? Yeah. You're not important. Why is it? And and also, like, space is really big. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other like nail in the coffin, right? Yeah, space is real big. Like, it's it's and people are like, oh, maybe they have tech. Like, no, no, like physically physics. You can't just you can't break physics. If you've done something like I've broken physics, you're wrong. Yeah. Well, okay. Hold on. We can say, like, there exists some technology that allows aliens to get from wherever the heck they are to here in a reasonable amount of time. But then we have to ask ourselves, why? Why would they care? They would have they a level of technology that, like, they wouldn't even, like, they would be aliens anymore. Yeah. They would just be this whole other concept that's, like... Yeah, they just. They Why would they visit it. us? Like, did they could just create another version of us and watch us from where they are? And it was super funny if about they it. really cared, if they really wanted. To. True, suggesting that well, I'm not saying we already are, but I'm just saying like that. That does you you, you you can't not know now. I mean, that does that's not empirical evidence. That's just that's true. Yeah. Uh, just, but you also can't rule out that that's also just now a possibility on the list of like the whole yeah. universe is a simulation that would be actually. Yeah. That's just true. a classic like weird experiment that. Yeah. I'm assuming went awry, but um. There's a really good analog to that. It's like, why would the aliens come here? Someone explained this. Uh, I'm actually thinking it's Brian Cox, which is a great guy to listen to. But he was his analog was, yeah, okay, but we get this like highly advanced technological society that can just 
traveling around the universe. And they, they could, they could do whatever. Mm -hmm. But are we so important that they would just come here to just ruin our day or like attack us or do something weird? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just have no little small town to do They would not value any kind of resources that we might have. They would not value looking at us as an as something to like a zoo, because they can just create things. Yeah, they're like a Kardashev civilization. Like that's far beyond what Earth is. Like we're not even one. So that's like I think the Kardashev scale is like how much energy is available to your species, and mm-hmm. you could only be able to allow, be allowed some integer value Kardashev because you're intelligent enough to achieve it. So Kardashev one, I think, and I'll recheck this and you know make fun of myself later. But Kardashev one is that you're the, a multi-planet, uh, isn't it? I, no, I think, it's, no, no, it's you can harness the energy of, of your entire planet. planet. Yeah, yeah, but it's your planet. You harness the energy mm, right. of your planet holistically. Yeah, and then the second is your star. Yeah. And then after that, it's like either interstellar or galactic or something. Yeah. Something ridiculous. But, you know, if you're already Kardashev level one, and uh, you've probably detected some business going on in the universe, but really still probably can't do anything about yes. it. Because it would cost your planet to do so. Yes. But then you harness the energy of your sun and you can move on. So now you've already passed the need for harnessing the energy of your planet. And let's just do this by mass. Because that's just fun. <laughs> So let's assume it's a main sequence star like us, and we're a G2 dwarf, which is, I'm just going to leave the dwarf word there, because I'm pretty small from the G2 section, VR. G2 file folder. Yeah. Yeah. And um, if you can harness the power of a regular flavored main sequence star, then, uh, you know, by mass, like, we're less than a tenth of a percent of that much mass is energy. Mm-hmm. That's an uncomfortably large amount of energy. Like, you know, this, I don't remember how many zeros are attached to how much mass is in the solar system, and the sun is like 99.9999 something. Well, the, the sun is, in, in astronomers like to use grams, I won't do that to the listeners, but it's 10 to the 30 kilograms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like that's that's a one, and then um, 30 zeros. 30 zeros. And yeah. then a decimal, which is kind of dumb. And you're like, oh, well, that's in, what's Earth? 24. Yeah. So there's six zeros. The sun is a million times more massive. Than Earth, it would take a million Earths to oh, weigh the so same true. as the it, sun. It's one point three million Earths would fit in the sun. Yeah, and it's just like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, so, like, so if you can harness the energy yeah. of your star, yeah, like they're the not concerned um, with the faintest decimal point. Yeah, the yeah. ten to the negative sixth. Like, yeah, point. that's the thing is that if you do that, that math, like, so if you would do, if you look at the ratio of like sun to earth in, in energy, mm-hmm. the earth is five zeros and then a, a, like at the zero point five zeros and then and the number starts compared yeah. to the sun. Yeah. It's so one unit by Kardashev uh, level civilization two, they already harness the energy of their star. So we're saying harnessing the energy of like another yeah, you don't need the uh, resources from a yeah, you're not going to Earth to take anything yeah. that you couldn't find from harnessing the energy. So yeah. It's going to contribute nothing to your life and journey. Like, yes. It is. You, so you'd only be traveling to another star almost as a curiosity. Just as um, an interest. Like, hey, this thing's cute and it doesn't always happen a lot. If you don't feel thing. like, yeah, living on like a giant city-sized space station you could easily build with being able to harness that much energy and you really wanted to travel to another star to see what's there, You'd be doing it for science or for fun or for tourism, probably. Yeah, but also, like, um, at this point, you're at a civilization that's also super intelligent. Um, you're interested in getting, uh, you're interested in getting 
rare earth metals. Not even earth, but you're interested okay. in earth. Yeah, these are asteroids yeah. in grade that, like, you know, like, um, they're asteroids and, like, things that are so gigantic. You're going to find an abundance in space. You're not going to go to a planet for it. It's just the same deal. Yeah. You're just going to get it and detect it readily available anywhere else that's not a planet. So if you wanted stuff, like, the earth doesn't have it. And I think the analogy was... That's like us getting on a plane, flying to some isolated place in Africa, and you know, getting all the money and resources and fuel and, and buying it all outright, and inventing a place, inventing a route to get to a place very fancily to just stomp, stomp on an anthill and go home. Like, uh, do you really think that was a great value, like great use of your time? Like, <laughs> like I want you to get up, pay the plane ticket to a place, you know, just get it, stomp it, and that was the only reason you went there. And now you're just going to come back home and be like, I did the thing. I did the thing, Ma. No, you've got other stuff on your plate. There's more. You've got to make money to pay for rent. You've got to do it. got to find your own resources. And you're not coming all the way to Africa to stand on the anthill to just, yeah, yell at some, yell at some folks. You're not going to do that. So just, yeah, if you're an advanced civilization, you have nothing to worry about. They're not coming here to, like, test on things. And, you know, maybe that would be a thing, sure. But uh, kind of just... Where they probably have the tech to not need to steal people or things to steal. Or, them. or why would they care about being secret about it? Yeah. Because they could just do There's like. nothing we can do to them. Yeah. Well, yeah. We'd, they'd just be like, oh, hey, let me just grab some of you so we can learn how you work, I guess. But I'm sure they could just do that by like, I don't know. Like machines that scan us and just duplicate the thing yeah. on their ship, and yeah. like they never interact with us at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't have, have to picture and they grab it from yeah. the picture. A million times bigger is a lot of energy. Yeah, you, you can just... harness that. You have the intelligence. Yeah. Okay, to well, just, Plus, they I'll would make, make robots do everything anyway, so they'd never like. You never see like I don't know aliens or UFOs. It just just all be like robots, right? Yeah, they all be like mostly robot or better because of it. <laughs> just not the robots would be fantastically organic and something. Yeah, we're getting sure. really cool '60s novels about so space I guess, aliens. So yeah, yeah. So there could be aliens, but by gosh, by gosh. why would they be visiting? Uh, <laughs> I really need to go there. It's such arrogance of humans. Yeah, yeah. When they think like they just we think we're so important. Yeah. And that's my favorite thing about astronomy is, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> you are not important. And that's a great thing, because I really, the pressure's too big for me. And living in the, the sticks of the galaxy, it's mm-hmm. not that bad. No. Got a small creek. There's not a lot going on. No. I don't want a lot going on. I don't want big stars exploding near me, and I just got to deal with that. Yeah, you're deal right. That. Yeah. I just, <laughs> just got to deal with the supernova <laughs> coming in. Yeah, it was the quiet, the quiet. You and I were talking about that the other day. I was like, we were looking up, uh, we were walking to a buddy's house, and I looked up, I was like, "Ah, one of those went supernova, and you were like, a far away one, (laughs) (laughs) preferably, (laughs) because otherwise we'd just get cooked. Yeah. That's uh, that's how that works. Yeah, terrible way to die. So yeah, when I see these documentaries, that's that's the flavor I'm taking it in, but. Yep, it sounds like a good time. Yeah. Sounds like a great documentary. Yeah. It was very wildly overproduced, and you know, it's the whole we see aliens with long, gangly arms, they're green and small. Yep. Without justification, anyway. For some reason, they're naked. For some reason, they're fully nude, and yeah. uh, it's just a better way to. I mean, so. Probably a better way to be. Okay, that's okay. Nudist aliens <laughs> on vacation. <laughs> to Nevada. To Nevada. Where other regular nudists are. Yeah. And they don't want to announce where they are, I guess, so they're actually kind of self conscious. But what if they're just bogan? Like, what if they're just bogan <laughs> Nevadans? 
<laughs> like, that's one thing nobody asks, is the question you're all thinking. Yeah. Is, uh, how do we know they're just not regular, regular bogans? Also, another part I should, I, I, I wanted to bring up, because, uh, it, it tickled my, it tickled my memory. When you mentioned, he's like, oh, yeah, like, we had this element, and then a few years later, like, it actually comes out. Um, if he was working in the lab... Just well, and I mean, they're gonna they're gonna make it once. They're like, oh, but the new elements we make last for nanoseconds. Yeah, they do, yeah. They're, they're not even. And so you have to make a lot of it. It takes a long time, and they don't like announce it the same day. Like, oh my heck, we made this thing. And people are like, did you? They're gonna be like, well, it was there for you know picoseconds. Yeah. Our computer barely had the time to, to register it. So they have to do it a lot, and it takes time. So, yeah, two years before, like, a few years before it comes out. Like, that makes sense to me. Yeah, they're doing cloud like, oh, I was looking at this thing, and then all of a sudden, now they released it. Right yeah, that's how, it. that's how science works. But. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And that's so true. It's like the LIGO thing. Like, we yeah. saw some black holes. I'm 90% sure only a black hole could do that. Like, we made this, so only a black hole could do it. But we're doing a couple stuff. And then they had teams that were trying to dupe themselves. Yes. They have a team of people that don't necessarily directly communicate with the, the team that's uh, doing, doing the, the empiricism. And they're just like, we got to mess with them real good. I'm yeah. going to stomp on the roof, and Tom's going to take a moving truck and move his Mima, Just, But he's going to take an alternate route, and that's on top of the LIGO thing, and then just drive away, and we're going to see if we made a detection or not. And just, yeah, no. Uh, didn't work. You have to filter out a lot of noise. <laughs> filter out a lot of literal, literal shaking. Yeah. Seismic noise. Well, seismic. I mean, and the same thing happened with Higgs. When they were yeah. discovering the Higgs, like, yeah. you know. It turned that on. So took, long. Yeah, it took a, while, a year and a half or two years almost, wasn't it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so, yeah. It's really good Maybe to be more on than that. But yeah. the receiving end of these really cool things. Jeff, that's super true. No, it's never aliens, though. <laughs> it's never <laughs> aliens. <laughs> so many other ways to explain it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I wish it was aliens, actually. Right. Because I wonder, it makes you wonder what's going to elicit an actual alien thing happening. Right. What are they actually going to do? <laughs> Which is kind of like, almost scarier, almost more terrible. -er. But um, also, Jason, speaking of you, you talked about like you're looking at galaxies doing fancy business and other stuff like that. What is it that you do specifically? You're doing two things. Uh, yeah, I work with three props. Two I do research with, and one I'm designing a, a class. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's fun. And uh, the class one's good. I mean, yeah. I, I'm not saying the other two actual scientifically. The, I'm not going to lie. The design of class one is my favorite because it's... it's so fun. Yeah. It's 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 um, the science of sci-fi or the physics of sci-fi. And uh, it's geared towards, like, not physicists. So if you're in physics and astronomy, you don't get the credit when you take it. It's, um, it's similar to physics 303 mm. in that sense. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like, that's the yeah. life of the world. So. Uh, that's 205, Astro 205. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so 303 right. is just, anyway, it's a physics class taught by Arif Babul, who I worked for. Nice. Um, but this other class is with um, Professor Travis Martin. Nice. And yeah, like we just watch sci-fi and hmm. we explain why it doesn't work. Or we watch some sci-fi that gets it right and we explain why it works. And we're just going over, like, the universe has rules. And it might seem kind of crazy that... It does, but from those rules, we've put lightning in a rock, and now I send thoughts across the planet with it. <laughs> yeah, I actually said that analog. <laughs> we just have really well-organized 
rock quite magnificent yeah quite yeah. magnificent rock stuff and then uh, i text people with it and it's not actually hooked up to anything it's not the cool um you know solo cups hooked up with like a piece of string like we're not hooked up at Tin all cans just, and string <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. we're just making some angry lights that we can't see do some stuff for us yeah so yeah. i i do that uh and then i work with as i said i work with dr arif babul uh on galaxies uh, specifically, um, you get like a group of galaxies, and they all virialize. So that just means that uh, they kind of get relaxed, so they're not really interacting anymore. They've all found their happy place. Oh, okay, yeah. But in doing that, uh, all the gas in them gets heated up, and when it's hot, it leaves the galaxy, and it kind of becomes this intergalactic gas mix. And if you don't have gas in your galaxy, you don't make stars. But these galaxies are still making stars. So how does the how does the gas cool to get back in to make more stars so they don't shut off? Um, and that's what I work on. So uh, the main theory currently is like, oh, there's active galactic nuclei, and the, you know these AGNs um, are the main driving force. AGN feedback loop is what it's called, and it gets the dust back down and and forms stars. Um, we're trying to see if there's other mechanisms because you know we don't see a lot of AGNs, certainly not as many as you would think should be around to cool the gas to mm. to make stars. That's true. So uh, that's one project, and then I work with uh, Professor Chris Pritchett on supernova type one A progenitor models. Very cool. So um, everybody's heard of dark energy. Mm -hmm. And dark energy came about because in the late 1990s, 1999, um, a few scientists figured out how to standardize supernova 1As. So they found out that if we do, like we stack basically all their light curves on top of each other, the full width half masks, half max is the same. Mm -hmm. um, and so now they all have the same luminosity to a ridiculously high precision. And if you know how some how bright something is, and you know how bright it's supposed to be, you know how far away it is. This is our standard candle. Yeah. So if I hold a candle in a room, we just assume all the candles in the room are standard brightness, and I walk away from you in the dark room a while. We just yeah. can, we can make a. We can. I can figure out how far away you are by how bright your candles. Yeah. Look. So these supernovae are, are candles essentially. Yeah. Um. And they, just because they're the most powerful and most frequent explosions, although black hole mergers are kind of catching up. Mm -hmm. um, but these supernova go off roughly one every hundred years per galaxy, and there's a lot of galaxies out there. Right. I did hear that. Yeah, and they've been going off for a long time. So it allows you to look back really far, and you get a distance to that how far. And with that distance to how far, you can then say, well, how much has the universe expanded? And with Hubble, when he first um, started measuring galaxies in the 1930s, he's like, oh, hey, the universe is expanding. And Einstein was like, oh, my heck, I, I made my biggest blunder. I inserted a constant to make it static. And in the 1999, when they, they actually were able to look really far away, because when you're looking at all your models, all the measurements we had were like the three options of it's going to collapse it's going to grow forever or it's going to expand and tear itself apart. All the measurements we had, they were just like all the same line still. 
because gravity's just been kind of the dominant force. And But when you got the supernova, you suddenly looked so far away, all the three lines were different. Yeah. And so they put them on this, and it turns out the universe is expanding, mm-hmm. and it's tearing itself apart. And so that was dark energy. And But it all hinges on this weird behavior of Supernova 1A, which is a white dwarf. Um, so if you're a star that's around the size of our sun, anywhere between like point, like 10% of its mass to eight times its mass, so 0.1 to eight solar masses, you'll make a, a white dwarf when you die. Um, basically, the star can't, can't fuse the carbon. It's not, not big enough. And so it just expels all the other layers. You're left with the core, and it just chills. Cool Instagram image. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like, whatever, who cares? But if it's in a binary system, it could maybe increase mass somehow. And if it increases mass, well, then it'll reach a certain point where gravity will try to make it work again. And But now there's no other star around it to kind of keep that in check. And mm-hmm. so it's a runaway thermonuclear explosion. And um, Chandrasekhar figured this out oof, in like the 30s. Yeah, he figured like right away. Right. Yeah, like yeah. right away. It might have been in the late 20s. I think it was 36, 34 or something. Um, and he was like, well, if I have um, carbon that is, it's called electron degenerate. So all the electrons are basically preventing it from collapsing anymore. Electrons don't like touching each other. Yeah, we like our specific space. Yeah, they like a specific, yeah. And so gravity can pull it so much, and then the electrons are like, no, sorry, you can't go anymore. And so Chandrasekhar asked, well, how much mass or gravity would I need before it just says, I don't care, and it does it anyway. And it turns out it's like 1.4 solar masses of this core. And so if you can find a way to increase the mass of this core to 1.4, it'll explode. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, well, I'll just, I'll put it next to a star. It'll take some mass. It'll slowly increase. And we reach this 1.4 rather nicely. Um, and then that, that really explains why it's standard, right? If everything's 1.4. Uh, and then in the last 30 years, we've got some really good surveys out. We've started seeing where all these white dwarves were. And then we started getting mass measurements. Mm-hmm. And they're all like, on average, 0.6 solar masses. So to get to 1.4, you have to more than double. And like, I just want you to think about something right now. The Earth, like all of those shooting stars you see at night, all those meteors and everything, that is the Earth slowly gaining mass. Yep. But now I need to double it. I need to take enough dust out in space and I just need it to keep piling up on Earth until I have two of them. That's what this problem is. Yeah. But I could take all the asteroids in the asteroid belt. They don't make another Earth. In fact, they don't even make another Mars. Yeah. Right? That's so, actually a great point. Yeah. If I can't double Earth, and remember, Earth is a million times smaller than the sun. Yeah. Right? How am I doubling the sun? That's a problem. Yeah, that's and, a good point. And so you go, okay, well, I guess it has to, it's called accretion when you pull material uh, off another star onto another object, or when something accretes onto an object. And so they're like, okay, well, then we'll just we'll just accrete material, I guess. Now we have to put it next to a star so that it'll you know pull the material off and, and accrete it. And you go, okay, cool. Uh, what's the rate for that? 
order of the age of the universe type idea. Wait, are you saying like the the the, the, the amount rate, of time necessary the, to, to, to double it? to double from 0. 0.6 from to like one point four from accretion being a parasitic star is like ten to the nine. Wow, it is on the order of billions of years. So we've got a whole yeah, and so it's really hard to do. Um, probably not the like, there's like I said earlier, there's one per galaxy yeah, yeah. every hundred years, years, but it takes billions. So how are you doing this hundreds thing? Even if there's even if there's enough stars, even if they all start at the same kind of time, yeah. we're dealing with six orders or seven orders of problem. Exactly. Um, wow. And so what people started doing was saying, okay, well, what if I had two? Because like binary stars are, are very common. Yeah. It's the binary fraction of stars in our galaxy is like sixty percent. Yeah. So most stars are binaries. So you go, okay, I've now made two white dwarfs. And I don't care about how one of them, like they have to be close enough together. So one of them would have accreted at the time, but I don't really care because it accreted from its buddy. So either way, I can just split it down the middle and really be okay with this. Mm -hmm. But still 0 0.6, 0 0.6, it's 1.2, not 1.4. Yeah. So then you go, okay, but they're going to be orbiting. And so you can kind of throw in some like orbital energy on impact and you can make a 1.4 and you can just get it. You're like, ah, okay, 1.4, good. But then 0.6 is the average. Yeah. What if I have a 0.6 and a 1? Now I've got 1.6 or bigger. And it's not standard anymore. Yeah. And yeah. so now you have this issue of what's actually causing this, these supernova. Because we're, for some reason, that explosion makes a wonderful thing that we can say is like a perfect standard candle. And we have no idea what causes it. We know the mechanism. We know the cutoff. We have no idea how to reach that cutoff. And it's a pretty big, you know, yeah, pretty big problem yeah. because right now it's like, oh, yeah, the universe can tear itself apart because of this. And it's like, it's kind of like I'm going to drive a race car. Um, but it's flying, and I have no idea, but I'm going to use it, and I'm going to win. <laughs> but I have no idea how it works, I know nothing and I'm it. just going to say it does, and therefore this is fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and as a scientist, like, you can't do that. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. just It makes you uncomfortable, and it, it should make you uncomfortable. When That's when true. you don't know all the parts, and you're just running away with it, you, you're, you're bad. It's super That's bad. That's super bad. We're... Yeah, yeah, so I see that we have that because we we witness, uh, yeah, we witness them quite frequently, but the numbers don't add up. Yeah, and so what That's I what I try you. to do, yeah, what I try to do is <laughs> I I look at the rate. So the rate um, is different depending on which mechanism drives it. So if it's a single degenerate model, it accretes matter. It'll have a certain rate, and if it's a double degenerate matter, it'll have or degenerate model, it'll have a different rate. And so what I have to do is I, I look at surveys and we see, oh, well, okay, well, this is the rate back in time. But to get that rate, you actually have to know how massive galaxies are and how old they are. Mm -hmm. And all you have is the color you use to measure it. <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out how to get masses and age using only color. Mm -hmm. Because those are the things, like, remember, it's one supernova per 
galaxy, and I say per galaxy, but really it's per uh, like 10 to the 13 solar masses per 100 years. Yeah. And we just like 10 to 13 is roughly our galaxy. galaxy yeah. But um, I actually need to know the mass now, and I actually need to know per like, per 100 years, well, how old are they, mm -hmm. right? So I, there's, and it's because there's two things I have to do, and they're linked. So it's a degenerate problem. <laughs> oh so a lot of modeling. A lot of modeling goes on. Yeah, a lot of me looking at, like, I try to plot things in 3D and move it around to see if there's, like, planes that I can, I can, like, line everything up on a plane. Yeah. Because if you can find a plane where everything lines up and then you can plot that, you might actually be able to get, uh, yeah. get something out of it. It makes me stand out. Right. Yeah, or actually, or really cool. it's all lined up and you can find a plane where it's all fanned out. Well, that's the one you want to look at because now you can, you know, if I, right now I'm, I've got f four fingers in a row, right? But what's their separation? Yeah, you don't know. If you don't know if it's, if, if it's edge on, but if I tilt my hand, oh, well, now I can clearly see what's going on. Yeah, that needs to be so, really cool to work with. You're working with like the very romanticized, awesome thing that gives us the distances to stuff that's far away. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're it like, is, okay, that's cool, but, but how, though? Yeah. <laughs> but how? And it's cool that it happens. It's still equally as useful yeah. as ever. It's super good. awesome. The fact that, you know, uh, so we, lucky we can this. stack them up and we do get a standard candle out of them is, is handy. It's useful. Mm -hmm. But boy, howdy, would I... Well, yeah. I, I would like to know how. I would that like works. to know how this is happening, <laughs> so I can start thinking. I mean, I know how the the rung before supernova works. It's Cepheid variables, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and and like that's stellar astrophysics, and it's it's not well understood, but it's way more understood than supernova. Yeah. And that mechanism, like Cepheid variables, just it turning on and off at a certain rate. Yeah, and someone the lights on upstairs, but someone's actually flicking yeah. it aggressively. Yeah, it's just the the, <laughs> the, the thermonucleation is like on and then off and on and off, and the star oscillates accordingly. Yeah. And you know you can time it, and because you can time it, you can get a light curve, and and you know everything about it you need to know. Mm -hmm. Works great. But Supernova, you like... get a light curve, and you're like, cool. I have no idea what caused that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're also dealing with uh, weirder than normals behavioral statistics of the yeah. the stuff that's generating. Yeah, and there's like and there's stuff. And like I'm only comparing single degenerate and double degenerate. There's other models. Yeah. So but you know, they all produce different rates. And so and some of them are like, you know, corrections on the third decimal and I deal with twenty percent error. So yeah. third decimal <laughs> is not something I have reached to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, a fifth of the time is I'm pretty good with it. Yeah. So that's fun. Well, I like to hear about how that actually turns out because that sounds like one of those things you'd be chasing for a while. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah you'll keep us like... up to date, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> like my my big thing is I, I I model a stellar population, and then I I model uh, an evolution of it over time using like star formation rates, uh, and just like try to make a galaxy. And then one of the one of the newest things I've done is I'm trying to make a galaxy with a bulge and a disk because they behave differently. Right, right. And I can vary the amount of like the size of the bulge. So the Milky Way has a very small bulge compared to its disk. <laughs> and whereas like elliptical galaxies are all bulge, they have no disks, right? And the supernova rate is going to be different in those populations. Yeah. So if I'm looking at something that's predominantly disk, it'll have a different rate 
but it's something that nobody's taken into account yet. Yeah, and also you also have to flavor the like the supposition of what's also getting those things going too. Like, yeah. what is making these things wildly different aside from some surface assumptions that we're getting more yeah. interactions? And yeah, like the, the discs just make more stars. They just do it. The bulge made, made stars <laughs> once, and yeah. now it does not. <laughs> and so it's going to be very old. Old things, like do how does that rate? Shouldn't work? you be able to find more type one A's in the bulge then? No, the if rate all drops old, over time. They're all old. The stars. rate drops over time. So as it gets older, you, you just have more M stars, and they just live forever. Yeah. But <laughs> so your rate those, goes up. Oh, okay, but you your can't rate have drops off. Because white dwarfs in there. You have white dwarfs, but they might they, that aren't accreting mass from a from companion? what a, a point a companion that's going to be point one solar masses itself. They're How do you small, small, oh, you're small, saying they're too small. They don't make you're white dwarfs. You're saying they're M's, and so they're so yeah. tiny. They, they don't make do white. Well, they don't even make white dwarf cores. They they don't. Yeah. So they just don't the red dwarfs, but there's no red. Yeah, there should be a you bunch of that. white dwarfs, like case. but you not. Need, yeah. Oh, but yeah, you're right. You need, you need giants to give them mass, and you know, right. Yeah, you need case. I don't. I don't think. I think M. Some M's will make a white dwarf, but that white dwarf. Isn't you know the star itself is 0.6 solar masses, so its core is not going to be 0.6. It's going to be like 0.1, mm -hmm. right? So how, that that's got a, a huge climb. I could smash that into a, a 0.6 solar mass, and it's not going to feel it. There's going to be no thermonuclear just going to absorb it and yeah. make a moon, I guess. Yeah, thank you for your incredible donation, Ina. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So business great handshake. Yeah. 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 Um, so you know, like that's not. Yeah. Those stars aren't need, doing need... anything either. They're just hot chili. Yeah, basically. they, they, they make a different type of supernova that, that do yeah. other things. Like we can't standardize type two supernovas because it's just a yard sale. Yeah, that's just a complete yard. First off, we can't even make them explode in our models, so we don't understand them at all. And <laughs> standardizing them is is like, no, we don't know how. We yeah. try the same method; it doesn't work. So type one A's are very unique. Mm -hmm. um, eight solar masses, you know, uh, that's some F's, uh, like F's, G's, and K's are what I'm looking at. And they go supernova around the 10 giga year range. 10 giga year, 10 billion year. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. you know, that's like how long the sun will live for. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's basically so you're waiting for. K, um, F stars, which are larger than the sun, they get your, like, your, those are your eight solar masses. Um, they will live for maybe like five billion years type idea. So that's your window for making type one A's, um, five to 10. And yeah. you know, like the bulge is yeah, yeah. way older than that. <laughs> way older than that. <laughs> so that, that rate has dropped and the disc is making new stars. And so yeah. it's should have a constant rate yeah. ish, ish, constant ish rate. Um, you're going to be making less larger stars over time just because of the way the gas is mixed and more metallicity. Uh, but so your rate will drop just not as sharp. Um, so you're thinking, so what we're thinking is, is that, you know, the, the bulge will drop and it'll pull down your rate. Mm -hmm. Um, but also for some reason there is actually more supernova in elliptical galaxies. That's weird then. Yeah. That's odd, yeah. Um, and so that like inflates the rate, and so we don't know how we're, how it's going to play out. Can you not also do type one A's by just having white dwarf white dwarf interactions? Yeah, that's the double degenerate. Okay. Yeah, that's, okay, the, okay. that's the assumption of the. Yeah. So, so you can have a lot of those in an elliptical. Yeah. And so that so, shouldn't be too mysterious. 
obvious. Yeah, and so that's the thing, is that for some, like, there might be in bulges that it gets an inflated rate. So mm. things that have higher bulge, you think, would drop the rate because they're older, but really the rate goes up because there's just more, it's more doubly degenerate. Okay. And that's the winning model. Yeah. So we have we have no idea it's currently what I've got to do. That's your job. Yeah, I've 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 made him I've made him and I have to find a way to add them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. If you could hurry up, please. I'd actually just, just yeah. figure it out. Man. Yeah, exactly. Figure out how the whole universe is doing its job. I, I'm doing my best. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing my best. Yeah. I got my laptop in my dreams. Yeah. And a lot of lines of code. Man, sometimes that's all you need: a laptop and some dreams and some. There you well, go. For this, you're on your way. One. You're, you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> like you, you talk about you know your understanding of computers and your comp side. Like I've got in the code I use for for like Pritchett stuff, I've got four um, main codes. One's in Fortran, and it's mm -hmm. it's huge. Like it, it it actually runs quite a bit. I couldn't tell you how many lines of code that is because it actually runs 5,000 lines, but calls like four other things that have their own yeah. 2,000 lines. So. That one's just, I'll say that's just got all the code. Uh, I've written three things in Python yeah. and each like two, 3,000 lines of code. And every time I want to do stuff, I just tell it to go and I walk away. <laughs> <laughs> you go to lunch. And then... Yeah. You know, I, I, I'll watch a show for an hour. Nice. I've actually made my laptop, um, I run Linux, so I can just like, I have eSpeak. And nice. um, I just tell it to yell job complete. Nice. Because I'll be somewhere, I'll be in like the next room. Work complete. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, like it's it's super important to have that that kind of computer background. And in Babul's work, um, once again, there's like six or seven of thousands of lines of code that that one takes. A supercomputer takes like five hours to chug through it, but it's Gee. a it's a galactic simulation, like a multi right. right. Lots of points. Yeah. So we've uh, we actually use the one of the galaxy simulation runs, and we we check it for for groups of galaxies, halos um, of these galaxies, and then we like find like oh where multiple galaxies have uh, overlapping halos, that's a cluster, right. mm -hmm. and then we see okay well what is that gas doing, and yeah. how is it you know if we insert this model. Uh, does that cooling that we would expect to get from that model, does it match observation? Mm -hmm. And, you know, right now it's like 30% AGN feedback, which is a lot higher. than <laughs> That's spicy. That's yes. what that is. Yeah. Um, whereas with the code we're working on, so we've added, funnily enough, we've added supernova feedback. So as the supernovas go off in the galaxies, they're, they're shockwave, um, just kind of snakes its way through between all the stars and gets out into that medium. Oh, really? Oh, that's cool. Okay. Yeah, and then that cools that medium down by just increasing its metallicity content. Because mm -hmm. metals, which is everything you know, heavier than lithium or heavier than helium, yeah. um, are really good at dissipating heat. Helium and hydrogen, you know, they'll they'll chill at ten thousand degrees and just be fine with it. Um, I'm pretty sure hydrogen actually stops emitting once it gets over 10,000. <laughs> so it's just stuck that hot. Oh my god. You're just stuck. <laughs> it, I guess, it, well, it can't cool. Because it is, yeah, basically it cool. just a, I mean, a pro 
vote on. Yes, yeah. so it just it can't just it's just gonna uh, in this case that's it translate the temperature translate to to, to motion. Yeah, and, and it, so it just screams along. If it doesn't have it doesn't. enough uh, like it's degrees so of freedom to yeah. emit. That so it, 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 it just stays on. Yeah. yeah, it has to bump <laughs> into things, and that's breaking radiation, which mm -hmm. is them strong, and that makes X-rays, mm -hmm. and so that's like its main cooling mechanism. But if you can give it metals, so that's the thing is AGN, like active galactonuclei, just kind of like throws stuff in the way, I guess, mm -hmm. and that's what cools the gas down. Is it just makes it gives it more opportunity for bremsstrahlung. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you just increase the metallicity. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, one supernova per galaxy per every hundred years. That's a lot of supernova. And that could easily dominate. And so that's what we're looking at is, you know, we, we increase the metallicity. And by doing it at different metallicity slices is like turning up the, the supernova rate. Mm -hmm. You just kind of like feed it more supernova. It'll increase metallicity. So you just look at a higher metallicity band. Mm -hmm. And you see at what metallicity do you get observations does that make sense? Does that supernova rate make sense? And the reason why I work with Babul is I know supernova rates. <laughs> turns, <laughs> out, turns out. Turns out my honors thesis was supernova rate. Turns out you like to read it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's like, yeah, if you're over 10 to the 8, don't do it. Don't do it. So it's, what I'm trying to get is like an accurate rate, but it's, it's... And then, like, I feel like with that kind of stuff, though, you just kind of, eventually you just kind of think of something. Mm-hmm. You get it like later, and you're like, ah, probably. I feel like it's two flavors of thing. Like you think about whatever you decided to work on that was a cool idea, mm -hmm. it has a small hole in it. You need to fix the hole yeah. or uh, just remove the whole thing. So it's yeah. strong. I mean, it's. It, I can't completely rule out active galactic nuclei because we see that as an effect. So I can't just be like, no, it doesn't happen. I see it as an effect. Yeah. So I have to see, you know, in order for me to add supernova, it, like does a rate of supernova does it get stupid yeah or does it make sense if it makes sense well then hey guys you don't need to turn on your you don't need to turn on the black holes in the center of galaxies all the time it turns out they can just chill mm -hmm. and supernova rates do the most of the heavy lifting nice and you know a hundred years for supernova is not that long it sucks for humans you know mm -hmm. it's four generations or something for generations like 25 years or so so yeah hundred years like, 10 to the two and a 10 to nine yeah yeah like yeah, so there's like seven, the 10 to the 7, there's like 10 million supernova within a billion years. Yeah. So that's, that's more than enough to increase a little bit. Of, especially since once yeah. the supernova goes off, it, it just makes the periodic table elements. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, here you go, yeah, have it everything. everything. Yeah. <laughs> everything, by the abundance, you will need to make solar systems out of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that's time? That's time. I'm, I, yeah, I'm, it's I'm quite late now, right? Yeah. I'll be up for another. I got to go home. Probably yeah. have some expanse. Nice. Because cool. it's part of my job. Yeah. You're gonna study That's the, the best yeah. thing. So I've been, I actually like have a notepad and as I'm watching it again, because season four is going to probably drop hopefully within the next few months. I actually got to get on And so, yeah, I've just got like a notepad and it's because they, they do it a very important thing. Uh, think of Star Wars when they come out of hyperspace. How do they slow down? Yeah. Like that, it just like suddenly just stops, that, yeah. and you're like, no. <laughs> Especially when <laughs> like, it yeah. breaks in space, have rockets they have to. Well, yeah, don't they have to go Halfway. jump to speed? They would jump have to... to light speed to get to hyperspace. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they they have to be traveling really fast and already, and then they get through hyperspace, and then they just stop. 
But there's no like jets on the front of their ship, so I, I don't know how they do it. How, how do you control that? Like... Yeah. Um, whereas the Expanse does it really good. There's multiple episodes. Well, the Expanse where... doesn't have like traveling the entire no, galaxy. But, the, but what it'll do is it'll get it, it gets to a point and they say, "Yeah, we're halfway. We got to flip and burn." So they have to turn yeah. the ship around. That's that's and then and then decelerate backwards. They just they just make the ship point the other direction and turn yeah. the rocket. So on. So that's the standard undo. way to space travel if you're not worried about fuel. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, and fuel's a problem. <laughs> well, like, for us in real life, in yeah. the expanse, they just they wave it away by saying they, our engines are super efficient. Yeah, so, yeah. Which yeah, I fuel. I did I did think that was cute. That, that they like, was an entire episode yeah. in the second season where to they help ex- explain that. Yeah, they just like <laughs> I guess we'll talk about the drive because everybody keeps getting mad at it. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, like efficiency. I can run this thing at mock chicken for years. <laughs> efficiency. Yeah. Yeah. They never have to... yeah. They never have to refuel. The only thing they have to worry about is water. Like they, that big thing. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our first episode. If you haven't already, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and be sure to join our new subreddit. On our subreddit, we host something called Ask an Astronomer. Here you can post a question to ask the fourth floor, whether it be about space, sci-fi, a conspiracy, or a personal question for Jason, Calvin, and I. Typically on a Wednesday night, Jason, Calvin, and I are asked questions not only regarding astrophysical phenomenon, but also things like, do we believe in aliens and why? Or, can you prove the Earth is flat? What are your thoughts on Planet X? You can, of course, ask us questions regarding our personal lives, if we have those. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.